Sometimes organizations and businesses talk about mission drift, where before you know it, over time, your main focus is no longer what you thought your main focus was supposed to be. You've drifted away from your, from your original mission. It's fascinating to me and striking to me when we look at Jesus and we hear from Jesus just how resolutely focused He is. And the more that we know about Jesus, the more that we know that this has been on mission, on point, um, not just for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. When we hear from Jesus, since Genesis chapter 3, the way Jesus reads the Old Testament, since Genesis chapter 3, up until His life, after His life, and into eternity, He is on point, on mission, focused. Jesus came, Matthew one twenty one to save his people from their sins. That is his mission. That has been his mission. In the Old Testament, it was in anticipation that that would happen. We'll even hear about it today. Then he comes and he accomplishes his work, but he will forever be known as ultimately our Savior, the one who came to save his people from their sins. I bring it up as far as a mission drift uh, setting because it's also amazing how many people who were the professed people of God during Jesus' life were, maybe, maybe we can't call it mission drift, um, maybe we'll call it savior drift, how they have savior drift. They talk about a savior, they talk about uh, certain things, they talk about, uh, they quote Bible verses, they believe the Bible is true, and yet so many times, time and time again, these fickle people end up wanting a savior who will champion this cause or a Savior who will champion that cause, or that cause, or that cause. All these Saviors to do many things, many even good things, but not a Savior who will save them from their sins. It's unnerving, it's troubling, it's unsettling. It causes me to say, I don't want to be like them. That's easy to do. It causes me also to be all the more impressed with Jesus, focused, on point, forever with divine purpose throughout history into eternity. He's the one who came to save his people from their sins. This morning what we're going to do is look at Matthew chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you can look at the 11th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And we're going to see that Jesus resolutely focused even amidst a lot of fickle people. Confused people, opposing people, people who used to like him and don't like him anymore, people who used to like John the Baptist, don't like him anymore. And it's great to see that Jesus isn't a politician, Jesus doesn't cave, Jesus doesn't change things under pressure throughout this whole thing, focused, on point, no drifting. And we here in this room can be thankful for that today. If Jesus would have listened to the fickle masses, even the professed people of God, we wouldn't even know what the gospel is. And so we're going to be hopefully impressed with Jesus today as we look at Matthew 11. We're going to look at verses 1 to 19. We won't pre-read it or we would be here a long time. Um, so we'll look at the first, uh, first 19 verses. If you're just joining us as a church, we're going through the gospel according to Matthew. Um, 121, name him Jesus, just bringing the rest of you up to speed. The whole book is about this. In 121, Jesus is named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So he does lots of amazing things, important things, good things, but ultimately it's to show that he's the Savior. So let's jump right in, if you would. And in verse 1 of chapter 11, we read these words. When Jesus had finished, finished instructing his 12 disciples, 
he went on from these to teach and preach in their cities. The cities of the Jews, that would be. And I'll go faster later, but I always stop after the first verse, so I'll do it again. I want to make the point that he, Jesus instructed his disciples. That was special. That was unique. It took time away. But now Jesus is back to doing what he does. He's back to doing what he has been doing, teaching and preaching. And what has he been teaching and preaching? Well, if we can answer that, we know what he's teaching and preaching here. He's teaching and preaching the same things. He has taught that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, unless your obeying, obeying God is better than the best, you won't see the kingdom of heaven. That's not good news. It's teaching. It's true. It's from the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not encouraging. But Jesus has also been teaching that he didn't come to abolish those requirements. He himself has come to fulfill those requirements. Himself, see, came to save his people from their sins, also in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been learning these things. That's what he's been teaching all along. You are not okay in and of yourself, but I can make you okay. I can rescue you and I can reconcile you to God. Don't look inward. Don't look to other people. Look to me ultimately. That's what he's been teaching. He's also been preaching. I know they're similar, but a little bit different. He's been heralding, making announcements, not just instructing, but he's been making declarations. And what has he been saying again and again and again and again? He's been saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're not on the right track. No one is on the right track naturally. Repent means to change your mind. You need to have a fundamental change of mind about who you are and your status before God. Repent. Get ready. Why? The kingdom of heaven. Because He, Jesus, is the King, is at hand. And that's good. That's good if you're an oppressed person. You want not these kings that take bribes, not these kings that are corrupt, not these kings that are okay, kind of good. No, the kingdom of heaven, it's come from above. Jesus, the ultimate King, the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus has been proclaiming that. He's been calling people to believe in Him, to trust in Him. And so we would expect Him to be doing the same things, teaching and preaching about Himself as the focal point of it all. Now we go to verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, the King, he sent word to his disciples. So this is John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. We learned he's in jail in chapter 4, verse 12. And so he sends his disciples because he needs to make sure of something. Is Jesus really the one? Verse 3 says, And said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you the one? Now it's fascinating. John the Baptist sends them to the Christ, which means Messiah, to find out if he is the Messiah. He's not altogether doubting it. John has not put all the pieces together, right? John in the past hasn't put all the pieces together. In chapter 9, he's confused why Jesus' disciples don't fast, as his disciples do and other Jews do. Uh, He was confused at the baptism of Jesus. Why would I baptize you? He he doesn't see things clearly, and that's okay. Jesus isn't going to scold him. But he needs to make sure. Are you the one? I said you were the one. I thought you were the one. So why would John be asking this? Well, think about it. You, if you're John the Baptist, you are the one who came before the Messiah saying, everybody get ready. I mean, you've got a great job, an important job. You're the forerunner, the precursor to the king, the Messiah. And now what? 
you're looking at four walls of a jail cell. Doesn't really seem like you should be in jail for doing that. Right? This doesn't seem to be right. And it's not going to seem to be right when Jesus has been opposed as well and Jesus is also ultimately crucified. But there's a greater plan. We know that. John just hasn't put the pieces together here. So Jesus is going to help him. Nothing wrong with asking questions. He's asking questions. But I do love it. I hope you notice there. Are you the one who is to come? There is one who is designated as the one who is to come. That's the promise of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion. And John says, are you the one? There have been many Christs. Christ just means anointed one, uh, means king, Messiah. There have been many of them. Are you the one who will save his people from their sins? I need to find out. I need to check. This is baffling to me. Why am I imprisoned? Why did the people like me? And now they don't like me. Why aren't the people who liked me before demanding my release? Don't scold John, right? Give him a break. It seems pretty strange. The King of kings and Lord of lords, and you were the one who came before him, and now you're in a jail cell. Um, Just checking. Are, 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 Are you the one? Okay, then verse 4 says, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. What you hear, I like to say, ear witnesses and eyewitnesses. I mean, if anybody could say, anybody in the world could say, just take my word for it, it would be Jesus. But in this case, he doesn't say, just take my word for it. I want you to go back to John, your leader, and I want you to report on objective reality, what you see happening before your very eyes and what you hear happening before your very ears. And go back. In other words, I'm him because I'm going to do the things that only he could do. Sometimes Jesus answers more directly. Like in John chapter 4, he said to the woman there, I who speak to you am he. Here it's watch, listen, report. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 5. Plot thickens. The blind receive their sight. Oh, literally, by the way, each one of these we can read in the present tense. The blind are receiving their sight and the lame are walking and the lepers are being cleansed and the deaf are hearing and the dead are being raised up and the poor are having good news preached to them. So characteristically, this is what I do. Again, as I keep stressing to you all, this isn't something that happens in a dark room or in a back corner alley somewhere that can't be verified. No, this is just what Jesus is doing all of the time. Verifiable, objective history. Go back and report that. So the effects of sin would include suffering, oppression, death, being ostracized, oppression if I didn't cover that one, ultimately ultimate death, the Messiah, the ultimate one comes to save his people from their sins and its effects. Jesus is the one. Jesus is doing it. And the good news, the good news ultimately about him, even, I'm going to put it this way, even to the poor, even to the people that other kings don't care about. Salvation isn't only for the poor, it's for the poor in spirit, but the emphasis definitely is on even the poor. Even the poor will be co-heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 7. doesn't matter who you are. If you believe in me as Messiah, anybody, everybody, saved from their sins and its effects. There's a fascinating proverb about this, by the way, that I had never really noticed before until now. The proverb says, 
Proverbs 29, 14. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. It's kind of interesting. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Why is that interesting? Because that's not typically what a king would do, to to be perfectly fair to everybody, no matter your status, no matter your power, no matter your money, no matter anything, to to be perfectly fair to everybody. If there were such a king, he would rule and reign forever. Because there never has been one. Even if, there, even if there's been great kings, there's never been one who's perfectly fair to everybody. And he selects out the poor because they're the ones that you could overlook easily. And you still get elected as if kings get elected. You get the idea. But there is one. Jesus is the one who fulfills that proverb. For him, it's not just a proverbial statement. It's actually, actually what he fulfills because he is the king of kings. He's the one who brings perfect equity to all. We won't take the time to do it, but I would love to take the time. I would love to take the time to look at the Messianic prophecies from Isaiah that emphasize these things, like Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, Isaiah 61. The whole thing with good news to the poor in Isaiah 61 is awesome and fascinating. And I'll just say this, Isaiah 61, which is in view here, is the scroll that Jesus opens and reads in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue and says as he reads it, today, in your hearing, it's fulfilled. I'm the one. I'm the one. And I would so love to read all of Isaiah 61. But it's, it's loaded. In Isaiah 61, you have new covenant fulfilled in Christ. In Isaiah 61. In that text... Gentile inclusion. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's also the Savior of the Gentiles. Ruling and reigning forever, bringing people eternal joy. It's in Isaiah 61. He is the one. Go back, report to John the things I'm doing that prove I am the one who makes fulfillment. It's exciting stuff. It's very exciting. I so badly want to read more. Isaiah 61.7, I won't read it. Isaiah 61.8, I won't read it. Isaiah 61.11, I won't read it, lest we not celebrate Father's Day beyond here. Um, but it's a big deal for Jesus to be this one. Prophetic fulfillment. Okay, verse 6, let's keep moving. And blessed, blessed before God, approval from God, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's kind of a low bar right? It's, it's, a, it's a way of saying the one who believes in me, the one who trusts in me. But he's, he's not even asking for much. And he's, ta- he's reaching out to John. John, believe in me. Keep believing in me. Suffering servant, but I am the one. And you'll be blessed before God. You'll be in a right relationship with God. Hang in there, John. He's not scolding John. He's not scolding John. He's encouraging John. Okay, let's transition. Verse 7 says, As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. That is John the Baptist. And the tone is going to change. Okay? The fickle crowd who have experienced Savior drift, who used to like John, now they don't like John. Maybe they used to like Jesus, then they don't like Jesus. He's now going to change the tone a bit. So I'm going to change my tone. John, it's all good. Hang in there, buddy. 
okay? Let me encourage you. But now let's make a point beyond this. Verse 7 says, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Oh, excuse me. Yeah, that's where we are. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, you may want to write in your margin, Matthew 3, 5, and 6, John was a celebrity. Everybody went. Jerusalem, Judea, all of Judea, it says. They, they, they flocked to John. John was the man. John was cool. John had it going on. Everybody liked John. You know, he'd be the guy you'd want to get his autograph. He had all kinds of... Not, they didn't do that then. But he would have had all kinds of fanboys. Okay, if you, if you wanted to be in, in the in crowd, we're going for the weekend to go hear John the Baptist. I kid you not. Super popular. Maybe they wouldn't say it like that. But everybody wanted to hear from John. We're all about John the Baptist. Let's go and let's hear what this guy has to say. It'll be epic. Word I don't use because it doesn't mean anything anymore. But I just used it for effect because now maybe it means something. They love John. And Jesus says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Think about it, in other words. Contemplate it. I want you to stop and think. Then Jesus says in verse 7, a reed shaken by the wind. So picture a little tiny pond, and there's a little reed. It's anything but stable, right? It's weak. The slightest little gust of wind makes it move. And Jesus says, is that the kind of guy you went there looking for? No, of course not. John was known. He was fire and brimstone. John tells him to repent. Woe to you. He pronounces the condemnation upon them. Uh, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath of co- to come? John was a hardcore preacher. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to following. I mean, r- strong. But see, now they don't seem to like that. And John's in prison and nobody really cares. So they were drawn to the strong. But now they, now they kind of like the softer, gentler type, apparently. And Jesus is going, think about this. The problem isn't with anyone other than you. Let's keep going. Verse 8 says, what then did you go out to see? Again, Jesus is asking them to think. I'm asking you to think. Then verse 8 says, a man dressed in soft clothing. Is that what you went for? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Did you go because he was a flashy dresser? No, we already learned he wore camel's hair. He ate bugs. He was a, he was a pretty... He was a prophet-esque, not a prophet-esque, prophet-esque, right? Who is this guy, right? He, 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 he boldly preaches God's law and, and he's in your face and let's go. And sometimes, by the way, people are drawn to that sort of thing. Sometimes they've filled stadiums, right? Sometimes we're not so into those kind of people, but sometimes we are and they become very, very popular to the point where I say fire and brimstone, you know what I mean, generally speaking. And sometimes we like us some law preaching, scolding. John was a good law preaching scolder. Let's just overgeneralize. But now they don't like it. They're fickle. They were all about it. Now they're not, not about it. And Jesus is saying, think about this. Think about this. Then it says in verse 9, What then did you go out to see? And then Jesus answers correctly, A prophet? There you go. They went to go see a prophet. Prophets are awesome. Prophets, even though the Jews have a history of hurting the prophets, persecuting the prophets, they, in their minds, esteem them. So it's uh, counterintuitive and it's contradictory. But, oh, yeah, Ezekiel, right? 
A prophet Moses, he also was a different kind of prophet Moses. Yeah. But time and time again, they don't listen to what they say. But there's still something about it. You know, when they open up their mouth, God talks. There's something pretty impressive. And Jesus says to the disciples, or excuse me, to his hearers here, you went to go listen to a prophet of God. And they would have all agreed with that. At least in theory. But then look at the kicker in verse 9. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Literally, abundantly more, you could translate it. Exuberantly more than a prophet. He, he was, he was f- a million times greater than a prophet. And they would be going, what? There's no category for that. There's no category for better than a prophet. When, when it comes to the, the rank of things, he speaks God's truth. They're, they're the, a true prophet is the greatest. And Jesus says, oh, John the Baptist is exorbitantly, extraordinarily, a million times greater than a prophet. And you go, what? Then it says in verse 10, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Quoting Malachi 3.1. Or as new Christians say, that Italian prophet, Malachi. Um, <laughs> it's Malachi. He's that one? Well, when it comes to the long line of prophets, the greatest prophet of all would be the one who would come before the Messiah and announce the Messiah coming. He would be the extraordinary category all of his own prophet. Jesus is definitely scolding these people because they used to like him and they should like him, but now they don't like him anymore. And he's saying, he's the the greatest prophet of all. The problem isn't with him. The problem isn't with me. The problem is with you. Malachi 3.1. Now what's also super fascinating as a little, not not even as a footnote, if you read Malachi (laughs) 3.1, if you read Malachi 3.1, the original text It's about Yahweh, the one true God, having someone who will go before Him. And now Jesus applies it to Himself. Jesus is not a mere mortal. He indeed is the one who can rule and reign forever because He is none other than Yahweh. He's the one true living and eternal God. Pretty trippy stuff. Extraordinary. Then we read in verse 11. You'll want to know this one for Bible trivia. Trust me, Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. And I have to say, in my house growing up, we would say, say what? Huh? Nobody greater ever to ever walk planet earth than John the Baptist. No one greater than him. Among those born of women, and last time I checked, that includes everybody. Think about that. The pushback from me, if I'm a Jew listening, I'm going to say, what about Father Abraham? You know, Father Abraham learned about him in Sunday school, right? What about Moses? Uh, What about, I like Daniel. Those are my favorites. Nobody greater than John the Baptist. Hmm. But see, we know why. 
no one greater than John the Baptist because John the Baptist is the forerunner, the one who would come before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, remember John earlier said, and right, rightfully, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So the greatest is meant to announce the greatest. And by comparison, there's no comparison. It's great stuff. It should, this is designed to get you and to get me to trust Christ, to look to Him. And if we've already looked to Him, we keep looking to Him. He is the one. He is the one. And now John the Baptist, who had the best job ever, he's the greatest prophet ever, is imprisoned. Something is awfully wrong in the state of Israel. They've got Savior drift is what they've got. Seemed like John would be our man to champion our cause, apparently. But then it didn't work out. And now we really don't care he's in jail. We're on to something else. I think we would be foolish if we didn't stop to think that that's kind of how the human heart is apart from Christ. It says in verse 11, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So if you're doing Bible trivia, here's how you have to do it. Just, okay. Who is the greatest person to have ever lived, but you can't stop there. You have to say, who is the greatest person to have ever lived up until his point in time? And people won't know what you mean, and they'll just say David or Moses or Jesus or whatever. And you'll impress them all with Matthew 11, 11, right? Well, I hope you're impressing them, but I hope you're impressing them by saying, look, the point is, he's the great announcer. But Jesus goes on to say, the least in the kingdom of heaven are even greater than the greatest. Right? Think about it. Because if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you've trusted in Christ, the Messiah, now you're united to him by faith. And so even if you're the least, you're the greatest cancels itself out is what it does. Think about John the Baptist too. He occupies both places. He's the greatest up until his point in time. But if he believes in Jesus as Messiah, he's in the kingdom of heaven. And so he occupies actually the two, two spots. And remember too, least in the kingdom of heaven is only true in principle, <laughs> right? That's a really short line, okay? Okay, everybody who's the least line up over here. You, you, you get that side of heaven. Um, it's, tr- it's true in principle. It's not true in reality. Now, maybe it's true in this sense. The people who aren't famous, the people we don't know about, the people who don't have a big, huge speaking circuit, the, 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 the person you've never heard of before, no biographies about them, they're still the greatest because they're united to the king. And that means they're a co-heir, Romans chapter 8. I think it's verse 7. Jesus is encouraging He's the greatest of the greatest of the greatest of all the prophets a million times more. And you know what's really important for you to know? Not to get his autograph, but to listen to what he says about me and trust in me because actually being united to me by faith is the new creation. Ta-da! I mean, it's, it's great stuff. It's great stuff. But we're beyond fanboydom, right? We're beyond autographs. Probably not. Fickle until we want somebody else's because we're on to the next kind of person.
Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 12 says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent, violent take it by force. It's under attack. It's being ransacked. It's opposed, which is so bizarre. They go after John. They like him at first, then they don't like him. They like Jesus at first. Now they're not liking him, and it's going to come to a head. Reminds me of Psalm chapter 2. That's not right. The problem isn't with him, though. The problem is with the us's of the world. Okay, verse 13 says, For all the prophets, I love that, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So in our context is, Jesus is the ultimate king. He's the one. It all points to him. But people are opposed to him. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because think about it. He says in verse 13, All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And in our context, they all prophesied about Jesus being the Messiah. And I love the way it says it. All of them did. Which is, which is a big concept to get your mind around. Not just this prophecy here and that prophecy there and this prophecy here and that prophecy there. Jesus is all of them. And isn't it also super interesting, and I learned this from someone else so I won't claim to have figured it out myself, that even the law prophesied. You don't normally think of the law as prophesying. Normally you think, oh, well, there's a prophecy here in um, Isaiah 7. He's saying all of Isaiah does, but not only that, all of the law does. Inclusive, unity, united, on purpose, going somewhere. We could stop and talk about, oh, how would the law prophesy? Well, you've got the sacrificial system, you've got the types, you've got the shadows, all anticipating the one who would save his people from their sins. But it isn't quite the statement. It's quite the statement in verse 13 about the Old Testament and how Jesus views the Old Testament. Leon Morris, the commentator, says, this means that the whole of the Old Testament revelation is viewed as preliminary to the coming of Jesus. It is interesting that the law is said to prophesy as well as the prophets. That's where I got it from. There is a plan. It's going somewhere. Let's keep moving now, if you would. Verse 14 says, and if you are willing to accept it, if you're going to believe, if you're going to trust in me and my words... He is Elijah who is to come. Talking about John the Baptist. He's the great prophet Elijah who is to come. I won't take a lot of time here, but fascinatingly enough, earlier John said, I'm not Elijah. John chapter 1, verse 21. But the angel, Gabriel, said that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 17. And so that's the right idea. Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah. Not literally as in a resurrected different person, but he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He comes as an Elijah one, the great prophet of God, pronouncing, making pronouncements. Again, when you think about that, the fact that he's Elijah, we should be stopping and saying, what's he doing in jail? That's not right. That's not right. Because sinful human hearts that are fickle aren't right. The problem isn't with John. The problem is with the fickle crowds who believe the Bible is true, by the way. But they're obviously not believing it the way Jesus wants them to. Then he says in verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Obviously, obviously a metaphor. You know what? If you have 
spiritual ability to comprehend, ears to hear, you'll understand. That's a positive way of putting something that also has negative implications. If you don't understand this, Jesus is saying to them, you're not like John the Baptist who just needs more information sincerely. If you don't understand this, you're spiritually hard of hearing. If you can't see how obvious this is, the problem is not with John, the problem isn't with me. The problem is with you, he's saying. Pretty hardcore, pretty to the point, pretty important. I just am so much more drawn to Jesus too that he doesn't say, okay, well, let's, let's just change it because we need, we need to reach more people. No, he's being truthful. So people are reached who need to truly be reached. Even so today, this very day, Jesus doesn't change things. Jesus doesn't alter things on focus, on point. The plan from all eternity is to have Jesus be the one who saves his people from their sins. So you can read Jesus as, oh, he's so mean. He wasn't very sensitive to their feelings. Well, I'm really glad he wasn't sensitive to their feelings because he spoke the truth and we're benefiting today, even today. Well, let's keep moving on. Verse 16 says, but, but to what shall I compare this generation? But what? But to what shall I compare this generation? Now, Please notice, Jesus is evaluating them, okay? Because we typically often think that we evaluate Jesus, that Jesus, we're the judge and we're going to decide. Here, Jesus is saying, what should I compare this generation to? Because I'm ultimately going to be the one who evaluates. Now, it is true, earlier on, Jesus is doing all of these things and he's being evaluated, Right? He's being evaluated by John, by John's disciples, because he didn't just say, take my word for it. He did all of the things before eyes to see so that we would say he's worthy of trusting in as Messiah. But we, we can't only think that way. So now at the table's turn, ultimately in the end, Jesus is going to evaluate. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. What's my evaluation? Verse 16 goes on to say, it is like children. And if we stop there, we could say, oh, this isn't that good. Everybody loves kids. So, all right, sermon's over. That's all Jesus says. <laughs> it doesn't go like that. So it's kind of, I just wanted to get your attention. I'm going to evaluate this culture, Jesus says, this way. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. Here's what they say. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge or a dark depressing kind of song, and you did not mourn. What's he saying? Jesus is saying, you know, it's like kids in the first century and they're going to play games. And so they want to act like adults. And what are big public events? Well, big public events are weddings and funerals. And so kids play dress up and pretend. And this scene is like this. You've got some little kids and they see some other little kids. And so this group of little kids, they're playing wedding. Or they're playing, they're playing wedding, and so they call to other little kids, and they want, hey, come play with us. Come do pretend with us. And the kids don't want to play. Something's wrong with those kids that don't want to play kid games. Well, okay, if you don't, if you don't want to play uh, wedding, let's play funeral. Let's have a dirge. And they don't want to play that game either. Jesus' point is, there's something wrong with those kids that don't want to act like kids. These are just kid games. 
It's ordinary. It's normal for kids to want to play kid games. And they don't want to play no matter how you spin it. Let's make it happy. We don't want to be happy. Let's make it sad. We don't want to make it sad. Not satisfied with anything. Okay. Then Jesus spells it out. The the dirge guy is John the Baptist. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. John's the ascetic kind, right? He's the one, I'm going to distance myself. Um, Even if he didn't do a Nazarite vow, it was something maybe similar, right? I mean, I'm going to go out in the wilderness. I'm going to eat locusts, and I'm not going to do fancy things, and I'm not going to wear fancy clothes. I'm going to be that guy. And I'm going to be the hardcore repent scolder, if you will, to overgeneralize. He's the in-your-face kind. And the people liked it at first, and then they didn't like it. Okay, then we move on. Jesus is the flute guy. The Son of Man, the Messiah. He, Jesus isn't afraid of, afraid of using the ultimate title. So we've got the, the greatest man ever, and now we have the Son of Man, the ultimate forever ruling king. Okay, what happens with him? He came eating and drinking. He was more like a normal person, eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors or traitors and sinners. Jesus is making the point. The problem isn't with John and the problem isn't with me. I like what one person said. They would neither repent with John nor rejoice with Jesus. They reject both. We're in charge here. We're going to evaluate everybody. And Jesus is saying, you've seen the greatest person ever and you've seen the Messiah, all of these things before you, and you're still saying we want something different. The problem isn't with me and it's not with John. The problem's with you. It stings. It stings. I would also encourage you to know they, they could have used isolated Bible verses from the Bible that is true to attack either John or Jesus. Yes, missing the whole point. But it wasn't like these people were atheists. And it wasn't like they didn't have Bible verses memorized. But they, as people who had Bible verses memorized, missed the whole point about all of the law and all of the prophets being ultimately about Jesus. We don't want to do that. Verse 19 says, we're going to end here and then a little conclusion. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So as is often the case, wisdom is personified as a, as a woman. And lady wisdom is proven right, justified by her actions. It's a good little nugget of wisdom. It's a good little proverbial statement. Jesus is saying this in other words. Both John and myself will be vindicated, will be proven right. Yes, he's going to go to the cross. Yes, he's going to be, he's going to be crucified to make atonement for sins, as the Old Testament says. But he's going to be raised from the dead, vindicated, proven right, Wisdom is justified by what happens. And they're both going to be justified. In the end, he sticks to the plan, to the focus. He is the Savior. He's not the one who will champion people's causes. He's the one to save, their pe- save his people from their sins. And in the end, he's going to be proven right. There you have it. There you have it. The accusations may come as they have, but the truth will be proven true. You say, what's the takeaway for us? 
The takeaway is nothing new under the sun. Fickle people evaluating Jesus. Well, no, let's start with John. John had sincere questions. Jesus gives him sincere evidences to help John. But then, and Jesus deals with him a certain way, but he deals with these other people a different way. And what he doesn't do is keep changing, keep changing, keep changing to make them happy because quite honestly, nothing will make them happy. And by the way, if you're not satisfied with Jesus, I got nothing for you. I got nothing for you. It's to look to him because your greatest problem, my greatest problem is we need to be saved from our sins. And that's what he provides. I want to end with a quotation from uh, someone named J. Gresham Machen. I quote him often. He wrote a book 103 years ago uh, that's timeless. Um, it's called Christianity and Liberalism. And what he's doing is in not, not political liberal, liberalism, uh, but theological liberalism. And he's calling the church to act like the church and not be distracted. Machen's perspective is that churches who don't believe the Bible's true anymore need to talk about something, so they talk about politics. They talk about all the complicated issues of the day that are complicated issues of the day that he himself actually cared about and spoke out about. But Machen's point is, as the church, we have a Savior who saves their people, who saves his people from their sins, and that's what we should be doing. And we shouldn't have mission drift. So if you will... Jesus didn't have mission drift on point. I'm the one to come to save my people from their sins, right? All kinds of distractions. And as the church, what are we called to do? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're called to resolve to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Machen calls the church to be that, where we can leave our cars and turn our radios off, stop listening to talk radio. We can stop trying to make the world a better place, even though we should be trying to make the world a better place. And we can walk in those doors and find hope and encouragement because the tomb is empty and we have peace with God. So I want to remind you that that actually is our calling as a church with this great quotation that comes from the very last page of J. Gresham Machen's book. Very timely, very important, very helpful. Weary with the conflicts of the world. Okay, I'll keep reading. Weary with the conflicts of the world. One goes into the church to seek refreshment for the soul. And what does one find? Alas, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world. The preacher comes forward not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin. Such is the sermon. Thus the warfare of the world has entered even into the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of the man who has come seeking peace. Great, it gets better. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a person can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, 
and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. End of quotation, end of book. I say, amen and come Lord Jesus. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the fact that Jesus is a great example. A great example of resolve and focus no matter the popularity ebbing and flowing. And we're thankful that it was true of John the Baptist as well. But we are also grateful and even more grateful for the fact that Jesus is not only a great example of resolve, but he showed that resolve for us. Because even more importantly, he is a great savior who is mighty, mighty, mighty to save. Encourage us to look to Christ. Encourage us to find our ultimate peace in him. And we long for the day when the world will no longer be troubled because of the return of this great King of kings and Lord of lords, in whose name we pray, amen.